Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. We're joined by Harrison Smith, the Director of Enterprise Digitalization at the IRS, and my colleague Tom Temin as well of the Federal Drive. Harrison, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Appreciate it. Good to see you again, Tom. All right. Can I, I'm going to start with you should start with one, Tom. Everybody talks about $80 billion. You don't have $80 billion. You're going to get $80 billion if you're lucky over 10 years. But there is nevertheless a plan to spend $80 billion. What does the digitization office mm. that you run get out of this? I mean, what's, what's for Harrison here? Well, absolutely. Well, I, and then we also sort of have to make the distinction that it's 79.347, but folks tend to round up. There's a couple spaces here. I think if you recognize uh, coming out of the release of the strategic operating plan is that there are a series of initiatives, right? Uh, and one of them, 1.2, not that I know this, but uh, 1.2 is the, uh, the digitalization initiative. And so one of the spaces that we've worked really hard in um, is to continue to reinforce our business model, which is, has all along been how do we test, frankly, emerging technology and innovative solutions uh, in response to how the IRS does business and, and what we're trying to do? Identify what works quickly. Identify what, what doesn't work quickly. And then work to scale it. Um, we're not an office where we are going to uh, support or be responsible for all the digitalization initiatives. But I'd like to think that we are an enabler. We are a trampoline, right? We're a rocket booster for what that team wants to do as well as the, the rest of the teams, uh, you know, working on, on the challenges that are highlighted in the strategic operating plan. Um, we really do focus on the innovative aspects, driving what works, driving results, uh, and then being able to shift it over uh, to folks for long-term implementation. Well, give us a couple of examples. Sure. So I think a really good example is the work that we've done in uh, what we call digital intake, which is taking paper returns, uh, paper tax returns, extracting machine-readable data from those paper tax returns, and then ultimately e-filing them. Um, this is an activity that we started last year, and true to our form, we started in a very uh, small and a very targeted and a very limited fashion. Um, it was successful. I will tell you, it was difficult. We ran into wrinkles that we expected, ran into wrinkles that we didn't expect, and ultimately continued to learn and scale. And now this year, I believe that we're at north of 120 times, so not 120% increase, but 120x over what we did last year. And so, again, expanding that to different types of forms, expanding that to other data fields um, has been an area where we continue to support. But ultimately, that'll be a space for another office to, to continue to scale and to grow. We're just not built a resource that way. And that's okay. It's intentional. But it's an exciting space around digital intake. In other words, you read forms mm -hmm. that might be handwritten. Correct. Some so of them are handwritten. Some of them are typed. A lot of different places. Just to detail, the Postal Service has been reading handwriting for a couple of decades now. Anything from there that helped you at all? We actually tried to learn as best we could from, from myriad approaches. So one of the, the underpinnings of this approach uh, to this technology was simply I went to extract machine-readable data from images and from, from items. So we could look at handwriting. We could look at what people did with OCR. We could look at what people did with training, with template-based activities. So we talked to the VA. Um, I'm not sure if we ever talked directly to the Postal Service, but obviously we engage with them quite a bit with the mail that we get. Well, they have numbers on their stuff, Precisely. Too. And don't forget, they also have some of the barcodes as well. Um, so, But uh, it's an interesting space. And I think the reason we focused so much on what, what the challenge was, because we didn't want to prescribe to industry what was the outcome. We didn't want to prescribe what the solution was. We wanted to say, here is our challenge. We want to be able to extract that data uh, and, and move forward and process it. So it was very, it was very helpful. Harrison, I'll jump in and, and kind of give Tom the, the follow-up on that. As you said, you ran into some wrinkles that you expected. You mm -hmm. ran into some wrinkles that you didn't expect. 
Can you talk a little bit about what were some of those wrinkles and how did you uh, overcome sure. them? Sure. So here's, here's one of my favorite examples. So if, if you're an e-filer and you submit something uh, that doesn't have a zip code, right? You haven't put your zip code in. You will not be able to submit it, right? <laughs> it'll say error and it'll kick back out. Uh, but paper has a different set of rules. And so you're sort of straddling the paper rules and the e-file rules. And obviously, there's a very strict set of criteria that Ken Corbin and his team at Wage and Investment, uh, as well as Jeff King, the CIO, uh, that they process and make sure that everything's secure. But you've got to figure out a way, if somebody submitted a paper return that didn't have a zip code, do I, I don't return it to them, right? I've got to figure out a way to manage that. Uh, and so there's a technology conversation around some of the business rules about how things get worked. But there's also a business process rule, right? Because if it's coming in in paper... There's a designated space for where those types of uh, items get identified. But because it's a different process and because it's a different pay- space, uh, you've got to make sure you piece those together. So the zip code is, is a perfect example. The other thing I just want to clarify a little bit on is you said the amount that you did last year was 120 times larger. So, so can you clarify what that? Sure. What do you mean by that? So I, I say 120x more, more this year more. than last year. So where you took in one, now you took in 120. That's correct. All right, because math, you know, <laughs> you have, we're talking about writers who, who... You're going to have to take off your shoes probably yeah, to count ex- this one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, there's absolute numbers and then there's percentages. So. That's why I always say 120x, right, because the percentages mean, you know... So this is one good example. The, the other piece around the, eight, the, the 79 point what, XXX billion that you guys potentially would be getting mm-hmm. eventually, maybe one day, does the, some of that also fall into the workforce side of this? And are you starting to kind of talk about the workforce in terms of how do you ensure the workforce is ready for some of these changes that are coming? Again, whether or not you get $79 billion or not. To be honest, Jason, I think there's, there's a, people who are a lot more well-versed in, in kind of that, uh, that strategy around, around the human capital. David Aiton, obviously, he's the human capital officer, uh, are, are pursuing that and supporting those needs. Um, I think the space where we really play um, uh, in supporting the innovation areas is, is how do we enable that, that set of activities, right? Whether or not it's improving an internal IRS business process or how do we uh, improve the, the taxpayer experience ultimately. So um, it's definitely a place where uh, what we're really trying to do is improve uh, how we manage and, and, uh, and support those processes. Uh, but ultimately, it, it's a very ambitious and a, and a great opportunity for the IRS. And I know that we're all, everybody's behind it and is ready to push hard and, and support it and say, hey, this is what we've done. We've been effective um, and really moved to this process. And when you embark on a project that is bringing in new technology, mm-hmm. new ways to digitize, and then you say eventually if it works, that's the one that scales. How do you interact with the CIO operation? Because at some point it has to become a system of record mm-hmm. and it has to come under you know different budgeting maybe. And so how do you... How do you cross that valley of death to the CIO operation and the ATO operation? The most immediate answer is you talk really early and you ask questions really early. Um, it's something where, as I talked about uh, on the fireside chat, it's solve other people's problems, right? And so you don't want to get into a space where you've got that gap, where you haven't talked to the, uh, to the CIO or you haven't talked to the records folks in PGLD, Kathleen Walters and that team. How do you make sure that you're stitching that together so that you don't have that delay? And ultimately, one of the interesting answers to the question is that because of the approach that we've taken with Pilot IRS and similar procurements, it allows us to say, hey, here are a handful of opportunities and a handful of solutions. Which works best for us? And one of the people that we ask in addition to the users is, hey, IT, which is the easiest one for you? How do we manage that activity? And when we're open and upfront about that with the industry partners, um, I think they see it as, as, as a reasonable and, and, and standard approach to how we do things. Because they have some big challenges that are taking up a lot of resources that they have started at over and over and over. And I'm talking to you, Master File System. 
and that, that's not really a digitization effort, but it seems like it would enable a lot of them. Yeah, and I think that's that's the space where we're understanding how some of these different approaches, because I think that's one of the misconceptions about uh, about innovation and, and, and doing something different. There are spaces and opportunities where it's the right time and the right set of data and the right use case to pursue, because you don't start with the most complicated one, even if it's got the greatest ROI. You start with the simplest one that you can figure out the best, the, the most clear set uh, and most actionable to, uh, information as early on as possible. So you don't want to start with the elephant and try to swallow the whole thing, right? You want to find out how does this particular item, how, if we're successful, how does it scale into other challenges and other problems? And that's really, that's really the magic sauce, so to speak. Harrison, we focused on that, that the big chunk of money that potentially IRS would get. Let me just take us uh, maybe out a little bit. Mm-hmm. The enterprise digitization project, the, the work you guys have been doing over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things you're working on today outside of that or including in that $80 billion. What are some of your priorities or, or projects and what kind of capabilities are you, are you trying to deliver to the IRS th- through the work you do every day? Yeah, so we already talked a little bit about the digital intake, which um, I'm certainly super proud of. But what I'm most proud of is how the team is engaged with the partners and the stakeholders. Uh, I think the business of innovation is is difficult. Uh, it requires change. It requires trust. Uh, and so we really say what I what I mean when I say that is the manner in which they've engaged. We have cultural principles, and while I don't go into all of them, I think there's a particular one that's that's very important here: be pro digitalization, not anti status quo, uh, and ultimately to be kind. This is difficult work. Like this is hard. And everyone is very passionate about the mission. But changing how we perceive things and what we are willing to try and how we're willing to try that requires kindness and focusing on what we can do, not lamenting on how we got here. So there's that really that partnership and that conversation which ultimately enables and fosters more innovation. The best way to identify if, uh, if something is working, if something is resonating with folks, is when more and more people ask about it and more and more people want to pursue it. And that's the really great space that we're in right now. We've been supporting other teams and they've said, hey, can we do this again? And that's a great space to be because it means that it's resonating with them and it's allowing them to perform their job in a more effective and efficient fashion. And if we're doing that, it's a home run. I love when you said that here at ACT-IAC, Emerging Technology Innovation Conference, be digitization, not anti-status quo. Because I think mm-hmm. people sometimes, oh, why are you doing it that way? Mm-hmm. And people get offended because that's, it was my process. I developed that process or I've, I love my process. It exactly. may not be perfect, but I love my process. And I think changing that discussion gets people on your side more quickly go yeah, ahead but jump I, just, I mean this is this is a really important piece right because you have and and i frequently reference this but i think it's very important in the conversation stephen blank has a conversation that is largely considered the the starter uh, the, the father of the lean startup method he has a concept called organizational debt i think most of us are familiar with technical debt but organizational debt is when the incentives and the the nature and the culture of an organization is is out of balance and so you've got a space where Decisions have been made, constraints exist, and someone has said, this is the best way to possibly get there. And they've got a lot of work to do and a lot of work to implement. Planck's concept of organizational debt means that you've got this constant sort of push and pull amongst folks who want to, uh, I think, break things would be the most uh, consistent vernacular today, and folks who want to, I want to optimize this situation. And if you don't recognize, to your point, that's my baby, that's my process, why are you changing it? Well, why, are you, why are you insulting me? Right? When you flip that on its head and say, hey, I'm not the expert here. You're the expert. You've been doing this for a year or 10 years. What is the biggest challenge? What do you wish you could do differently? And then you've flipped it over and it's not you telling them what you can do. I'm not going to tell Ken Corbin and his team what to do. I'm not going to tell Jeff King what his team what to do. I'm going to ask them, how do we help you? What are your biggest challenges? Well, we could never do this because that's what I want to talk about. Because when we enable that and we help them do that, it's their problem. It's their challenge. And it becomes their 
newest project that they're invested in and are really behind. You're not telling them that they're wrong. You're saying, you're right. How do we fix this process? How do we really enable uh, the improvement and the, and the, ongoing, um, the ongoing progression of the mission? And that's how it changes. We have to take a break. My guest today is Harrison Smith, the Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS. I'm Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Federal Drive anchor Tom Temin. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and I'm joined by Federal Drive anchor Tom Temin. Our guest today is Harrison Smith, the Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS. All right. So what's next on deck? We talked about the digital intake that's on on the intake. It's 120% up. What are you thinking of next specifically? One of the other places that we're really looking at is how do we leverage some of the uh, some of the technologies that are available out there. We, we came out with a, uh, a solicitation for AI, ML, and RPA solutions around improving the taxpayer experience with, with a mobile phone. And we've worked really hard to identify how might this, um, with that type of technology, because most people, right, there's a, there's a Pew Research Foundation um, that says, I think, it's, I think it's north of 60% of individuals in the United States use their mobile phone as their primary computing device, right? A significant portion of the visits to IRS.gov are, are mobile-based. And so do, how do we take advantage of that opportunity and the wealth of information that's available um, on IRS.gov? And that's Karen Howard and her team at Online Services. They do a fantastic job there. But how do we potentially look at that and say, hey, how do we access that information and how do we do it the right way? I think what becomes most interesting in this space is that it requires, ironically, it requires us to try something in a space that is is not as far as we can get, right? Someone might say, hey, well, let's have an authenticated engagement and let's do this and let's do that. And we actually have to sort of reel people back in their excitement sometimes and say, no, no, no. How do we start this at the smallest possible way so we can get the decisions and the information in order to make an informed decision? Because if you start big, you're not going to be able to find out where you are, how much it's going to cost, how well it's going to do until much later. So we really try to truncate that period of time so that we can make decisions about what's failing and what to stop and what's doing well and what we can scale. Let's go down that path a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the first or, or second or third sets of steps you're doing around, okay, how can we make it easier for people with mobile phones to do business with IRS? Are you starting with what? An, an RFI? A where are we today? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the process, if you will? So the process in this case was that we looked at um, and engaged with, again, Office of Online Services around uh, what are the types of engagements? What are the notices, right, that, um, that, that folks are pursuing? Uh, or so that folks, that, that folks receive the most frequently. And, and that's the process around how do we focus in on that conversation. There's a ton of tools that OLS and others in the CIO shop have, have already built. And so this is a different look. And to be frank, it may be in a space where it may not ultimately be successful. But it's important to try early on uh, and be able to shut it down if, it, if it's not going to work. But I think the opportunity to, for instance, have an interface where you can say, hey, what's, what's modified adjusted gross income? Like, how do I? I, don't, I couldn't explain that. <laughs> That's a complicated topic. Um, but be able to have that, that interface and that engagement is, is really important. And so, it's in, again, it's interesting. You get people really excited. They're like, oh, we should go big. I was like, we should go as big as we can and find things out in as short a t- time as possible. Because if go big means wait four years until an outcome and wait until deployment, that's, that's not where we're headed. Any work being done by digitizing with respect to the call centers and the questions, not actually remitting taxes mm-hmm. and returns, but just that, that whole issue of people getting information and answers? 
this is consistent with what we just talked about in terms of kind of go small, don't necessarily do authenticated. So I do know that Leah Colbert, um, she's the, the commissioner of SBSC, and her team have done a lot of really good work in having a, uh, a chatbot answer questions from, from taxpayers because it doesn't require somebody to access information about their account. They're trying to find out about things like installment agreements. Right? This is this is information that's available, but it's not, not something that people are always aware of. So you really be able to drive folks to there, help them perform self-service at, frankly, any hour of the day or any hour of the night, and it, frankly, avoids call center calls um, and lets people get information faster and easier. I want to shift over also to this idea of measuring success because I think that's a hard one. You could say, well, we delivered this many capabilities or we've changed the minds of so many offices or or we've we've gotten more people asking for Mm -hmm. this capability. When you look at your successes and look at your quick failures and how do you kind of continue, okay, are we on the right path? Are we doing the right thing? Is innovation happening with IRS? Because, you know, people maybe don't see it publicly, but mm-hmm. internally it's really important for you to say things are different today than they were last year, five years ago, ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the interesting part because there's sometimes, and not to put to be too ner- nerdy about it, talking about math, there's cost avoidance and there's cost savings, right? There's hours avoidance and hours and hours saved. But if you've got, you know, for instance, if you're saying, hey, we're going to solve this issue, perhaps with an automation or solve this issue with changing a policy, those people are going to go off and do other things and continue to drive value for the taxpayer. So, you know, we can talk about from like sort of key performance indicators, how many items we've taken care of and how many hours we've avoided. But it gets really complicated because do we talk about the investment from partners? Do we talk about the investment? You know, at what point do you stop sort of providing a fully burdened labor rate for this activity? We do joke (laughs) that at some point, if we really do our job well, we won't exist. Right. And this comes back to, to the blanks concept of organizational debt. Um, if you don't, in my opinion. Right. And uh, I think there was an interesting uh, study done by the IDA. That's a federally funded research and development center uh, that supports DOD about the role of the chief innovation officer in the federal government. And it talks about the importance of recycling and improving and getting folks to own that aspect of the work and feel comfortable doing that aspect of the work. And I know this, and this is exactly the question that you asked, Jason, but I think it's really important. Like, how do the efforts, you know, innovation space, how do you, how do you change the culture? Like, how do you improve the culture? How do you fix the culture? I think focusing on how an individual changes the culture of a particular agency suggests that there's something foundationally wrong with it, that there's some disconnect between um, what the structures are and what the incentives are. The culture exists for a very series of very obvious and important reasons. There's potentially, it no longer applies, and, but that's okay. Uh, the people at the IRS and the federal government at large are incredibly passionately committed to the mission. And they work many long hours and nights to support it. I personally am grateful for the opportunity to listen to them, to, to, to learn from them, to hear what they need to be improved or changed or removed in order to make their job easier, and then do the hard work to make those changes. Because that, to me, is how a culture evolves and becomes the next best version of itself, when incentives and goals and tools and vision are all aligned. Well, I was going to ask about the role of ongoing data, getting back to the measuring success. I recall back in the Clinton administration, one of your predecessors kept getting the number of e-file returns when that was new mm-hmm. on his pager to see how it was doing. On his pager. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's literally, that's how they, because it was the first time mm-hmm. they launched e-filing. So do you have a system of measuring ongoing once something's launched? to I, make sure it's not drifting mm-hmm. or what the drift is telling you, mm-hmm. you know, over time. Yeah, I get it on my Palm Pilot. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't, don't get Tom started on the Palm Pilot. <laughs> You'd be here an hour. <laughs> excellent, excellent. We'll do, that. we'll do that next time, Tom. So that's a really interesting, and it's hard because once you ask for reporting on a more or, or, or information at a higher level with greater levels of fidelity that isn't sort of contained within the individual team, 
you slow the team down, right? And it and it's hard, right? As as efforts become more mature, as um, as things tend to tend to prove themselves out and they get larger and larger, then you can get more and more information about what's being successful and what's not being successful. If we started, so we have to strike that balance, right? We have to strike the balance of, in, in our case, we do weekly updates with the entire team um, on the status of the individual projects. And then every other week, we have uh, conversations with the team around what are the broader perspectives? How is the strategic operating plan going to affect our portfolio? How, is that, how are these things going to work? Because the applications and the learning systems from across the individual projects are, are, are fascinating. Because you can sometimes get a particular answer from a particular individual in a particular office that seems very to make a lot of sense in one space. But someone else will say, oh, that's going to cause a problem for us here. Um, so there's almost, it's almost a series of scrum meetings, if you will, uh, in a different space. But there is that balance because every time we ask, we ask for a set of data, every time we ask to have a conversation or be briefed, it takes away from the tactical work that has to be done. But in order to make intelligent decisions about your portfolio and your investments, you've got to have that view across the different portfolios. One thing, as we're sitting here at the ACT-IAC event, you get a lot of vendors who are interested. What's your advice to them as they want to come pitch you, tell you about their innovations, give you technology, because you've done a lot of really good work with, for instance, Pilot IRS and putting things out to test. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get a lot of, I'm sure you get a lot of vendors who are interested in, in wanting to know where you're going next or how they, they fit into this, this modernization effort. Mm-hmm. So I will, I'll poke a little bit at you, Jason, because we know each other. Uh, someone told me the other night, said, don't call me a vendor. I'm not a Coke machine. Uh, so, uh, so we call them industry partners. Industry partners, there sorry. Quote, no, unquote. I, yeah, and we're joking yeah, about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, it's actually, it's a, useful, it's a useful phrasing because you mentioned I've been the, or, sorry, the, Kevin Beershank, who, uh, who kicked us off with the fireside chat, uh, mentioned that I was the industry liaison at, at uh, DHS and did a lot of work there as well. My guess is that over the past 10 years, I don't know, probably five, 6,000 pitches, get a lot pitch days, individual meetings, the like, the number of times where someone has been focused on the outcome of, I want to talk to this person at DHS or IRS or GSA or Interior, that's been their outcome, has been directly proportional to the amount of time that they didn't spend on learning what my problem was and partnering with me. The most successful engagements, the most successful conversations have always been preceded by a lot of really good work around, I read your strategic operating plan, I looked at your IG audits, I looked at geo conversations about the progressions, I looked at Fatara scores, I looked at those things, here is my solution, here is my team, and this is why I think I can solve your particular challenge. And, and I was talking with somebody about this last night, and they said, well, yeah, but then they might be wrong. I was like, but they worked hard at it. They tried to identify where the matchup was, where the fit was. And even if you're wrong, you showed me that you looked at what my challenges were. You tried to save, uh, uh, sorry, understand it from my perspective, and you wanted to partner with me. And I said, like, the next level version is, hey, I wouldn't move, you know, if we're, if we're competimates, I think that's the phrasing, right? Right. If I said, hey, I'm going to solve your problem, labor, right, because I saw Gundeep the other day. Gundeep, I can, I'm going to solve your problem, but I wouldn't mind losing to Tom. I wouldn't mind losing to Jason. They're really good at this, and I think they can help solve your problem as well. That was always the spot where I was like, whoa, not only are they not afraid, they've listened, but they're not afraid to compete, and they know who their competitors are. Like, that's really impressive. So I think that's the space where the more targeted you are on the needs of the government, the challenges within the mission, the better. When you end it with, how can we do business with you, you're a step behind. Let me thank our guest. Harrison Smith is the Director of Enterprise Digitization at the IRS. Harrison, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you, Tom, as well. My pleasure, always. 
We have to take a break. When we come back, we'll switch gears a bit and talk about the Homeland Security Department's use of artificial intelligence in acquisition. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments of the show, my guest is Scott Simpson, the Digital Transformation Lead in the Office of the Chief Acquisition Officer in the Homeland Security Department. You all at the DHS Procurement Innovation Lab are doing some interesting things around market research. It's a new tool you're piloting. Tell me a little bit about what that tool is and how it works. So it's the Artificial Intelligence for Market Research tool, uh, and it came out of uh, users, actually. The acquisition workforce kept coming to us and saying, hey, we need help with market research. We don't know where to start. Uh, We've got a lot of tough customers out there that also don't know where to start. What can you do for us? We had a couple of vendors on contract, and we said, well, they're doing AI work for us already. Why don't we talk with them? And so our users went through a discovery session with those uh, vendors. The discovery sessions led into development. Again, users were on board the whole time looking at uh, mock-ups and and wireframes and all that kind of stuff. Users went into development and testing, and they came out with these these three tools, AI for market research tools by the three companies uh, that went live in September. We awarded uh, three government-wide contracts that anyone across federal government can use. Uh, And basically what happens is the user will go into the tool, whichever one that they subscribe to, and put in a couple of easy search terms. Maybe they put in, uh, I'm looking for cybersecurity. And I want to know firms uh, that go back in the last two years that have done work with cybersecurity. Uh, And maybe they can put in some dollar value. They can look at whether they're looking for a certain strategically sourced vehicle. You know, we're from DHS, so we have a lot of strategically sourced vehicles like STARS-3, VETS, First Source 3, or 2 right now, I guess, as well as the small business. A lot of times, you know, hey, we've got a small business doing this work now. We want to continue to do that small business. And then they can hit search, and they can see all of this data. And so the AI for market research tools are pulling data from federal sources. So you think about FPDS, you think about SAM, you think about the Small Business Administration, you think about USA Spending, FAPIS, you know, all of those sources. They're open market. Uh, Anyone can get to those sources. And so these vendors are using that data to look at what vendors have performed that requirement in the past as a starting point for what vendors could perform your requirement in the future. And so you've got a really nice list of vendors um, that are sorted by relevancy. So the most relevant vendors are at the top and the least relevant are at the bottom. And it doesn't show all of the vendors in the whole world uh, because that would be a lot of work. But it, it, it kind of samples them and shows you like a good 20 to 100, something like that. And you can kind of flip through and see which ones you think are, are capable or not. It shows you the exact record. So it shows you all of the data. It shows you the explainability for why they think that's relevant. So if you're looking for cybersecurity, it will show you here's the three to five contracts that had cybersecurity in that FPDS record, in that SAM record, to show you, hey, this is this is where we're coming from. So you can flip through there. It'll also show you really fast some visuals. And so you visualize, here's where most of these are purchased. Most of these are purchased on Alliant 2 or CIOSP3 versus Open Market versus Soup. And then it shows you those same kind of visualizations for more than half of these are done by small business. And in the next visualization, here's the visualization of those small businesses. So you can start to get a really quick look at where you might go with this. And from there, then you can start to do your targeted market research. You can say, okay, well, from this data, it looks like I can get this off of uh, CIOSP3. I know that that's one of my strategically sourced vehicles. Um, for what other agency you're at. I know it's a BIC, uh, best-in-class vehicle. Uh, So I'm going to go there, and instead of just doing a blanket RFI, request for information to the whole CIOSP3, 
maybe you just pick up the phone and you call some of the vendors that are on there. And it's really hoping that this market research tool helps to speed along the process and give people that starting point to start their market research. The tool is just getting kicked off. I think you mentioned that it gets it launched sometime in, in the November, December timeframe. It's a pilot. You're piloting a DHS. Who are you piloting it with? How many users? And, and then what, what's the kind of short, long-term idea behind this? Yeah, and so we're piloting it at DHS across our – we've got many components at DHS, and so we're part of it, piloting it with our DHS components, including FEMA, ICE, uh, CBP, headquarters, and uh, USCIS. And the purpose of the pilot is to measure how well the tools work. So we're looking for feedback on, on how the tools work, but we also did a pre-pilot survey to measure how often do people perform market research in a given year, how long does it take them, and what is the quality of that market research. And we did that in a series of 10 questions. For instance, we did ask people the quality of their market research, like how do you think the quality is? But we also asked three follow-up questions like, do your solicitations usually result in competition to try to measure quantitatively the quality? Because if I say, hey, my market research is really good, but then my solicitations don't result in competition, that's maybe a disconnect. But we did see those four questions, the quality plus the, the three follow-ups, they did connect well, and so there was a, a correlation there. And so we, we think that the answers were correct. So we did that as a baseline. Uh, and we, we had some really interesting data there, and we'll do that again after our six- to nine-month pilot to measure what's going to be that return on investment if we keep going down this path. You know, we, we're hoping that the time spent doing market research goes down and the quality of that market research goes up. You have about 200 users who are piloting this. Or have you had interest also from other agencies yet, or is it just kind of starting that process of educating, learning, uh, making sure they know that this is a exists for them to potentially use? Yeah, so we're doing lots of um, engagement with them. Uh, when we when we built the systems, we didn't build just with DHS users. We built with federal users from across uh, the whole federal government. It's it's a federal-wide vehicle so that any federal agency can use it. We're making sure that people know that it's out there ready for use. So we've spoken to, to groups like the Chief Acquisition Officers Councils. I've spoken to the Acquisition for Innovation Advocates Council. In addition, there are other agencies out there that are, that are definitely looking at doing their own pilots. Uh, there's one agency that's uh, potentially looking at using uh, the beta uh, licenses uh, to start their market research pilot. Uh, so there's there's interest out there. People are hungry for these things that help to reduce some of that time spent on, I won't say mundane things, but, you know, the, the low-value things so you can shift your work and your effort to the high-value things. We all know that the 1102 field is both a tough one to hire for, tough one to keep people for. They're um, definitely overworked, especially in that fourth quarter. And so anything we can do to get them more time to focus on that high-value work, that's what we're looking to do. And I think all the agencies are hungry for that. And market research, generally speaking, is not an easy thing to do. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. And I think that's really the key here is you're trying to take something that maybe can feel like a little bit overwhelming and, and put some sense around it, right? Some idea of, okay, where do I start? How do I get going? When you talk about this came from the users, what was the big user question you got from them uh, beyond help us do market research? Yeah, the, the big question really from them was, I don't know where to start. Where do I start my market research? And so, so often, in, you know, when they don't know where to start, they were posting like a request for information on SAM.gov to the whole universe, only to find out, oh, this can be done with uh, an IDIQ or a BPA with five holders. And so all of those 90 or 100 vendors that responded, only five of them really responded, and I needed them. And so we're, we're trying to help them get to, where do I start my market research? That's always the big question. Where do I start? 
Uh, so this is that starting point, showing them trends about where people have bought this in the past from other uh, government-wide agency uh, contracts or from uh, agency-specific contracts, as well as the, the other big question that we, we got was, should this be set aside for small business? And this helps to show you people who have set this aside for small business before and people who have not, um, and give you that information to kind of start, as well as at the end, you know, I, I always like recommendations uh, for who should I call for something, whether it's a, a leaky roof or whatever else. I like to know, well, who, who should I call, whether it's my neighbors or whatever else. And so this, this kind of gives you that point of contact. It gives you that list of names of vendors who have done similar work in the past that you can now call and ask them questions about. In the same vein, someone may be listening and go, well, what if I haven't done work for government before? What if I'm new? But that you've, you've kind of started to address that challenge, too. Yeah, that's one of the de- challenges we're definitely addressing. You know, there's an executive order out there on new entrants, and it's something that we're really passionate about is getting those new entrants in there to get out of the feedback loop, to find out what else industry has out there that's new, that can meet our DHS mission, that can meet all of the missions. All of our missions are so important, and we know that new entrants out there have the capabilities, have that innovation to help meet our missions. Uh, so we're really hungry to get to those new entrants. And so we've got a couple of ways that right now we're looking at getting to new entrants. For example, uh, if you're registered in SAM and you've received less than five government contracts, we kind of think of that as a new entrant. And so when we see someone like that that com- matches strongly to our requirement, then we some of the tools note that and either have a separate tab to show, like, hey, there's some new entrants here. You should take a look at them. Or at least note them with uh, some kind of moniker on the side next to their name that this is a new entrant. But we're also looking at a lot of different ways that we can identify new entrants in the future. Uh, For instance, by using um, state and local databases. You think about California, New York, uh, Texas, Florida. They have just massive uh, contracts, right? Uh, Combined, they probably do just as much work as the federal government. Uh, And so if you're registered in SAM and you've also done work for one of those state and locals, that to me shows that you're interested in doing work with the federal government and just haven't broken in yet. But you might be just as capable or more capable than some of the vendors that we see all the time. So there's other ways that we're looking at identifying, you know, new entrants. And we'd be happy to hear uh, from industry about their suggestions for that, too, because right now uh, that's in our kind of phase two. uh, And so we're kind of getting geared up for that. And we're looking at what kind of data sources are out there that we can tap into hopefully in that same vein of, you know, being an open source like FPDS or SAM or whatever else, so we can just go into the database and, like, pull the data down on a weekly, monthly basis, something like that. We have to take a break. My guest today is Scott Simpson, the Digital Transformation Lead in the offices of the Chief Acquisition Officer in DHS. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Scott Simpson, the Digital Transformation Lead in the Office of the Chief Acquisition Officer in DHS. So far, what kind of reaction have you gotten from the user base so far? Uh, any challenges they've faced? Any kudos saying, this is, this is already so much better? G- give me just a little bit of that reaction that you're seeing. The reactions so far are positive. One of the reasons we wanted to do the pilot is uh, just to kind of work out the kinks. This is really the first time that they're seeing these systems in a live uh, setting, and so you can you can beta, you can use dummy data all you want, but until you get it out in the field and start doing it with live data, you never really know what you want in a system. And so this is that time to say, well, hey, I like this, but I don't like this. This needs to be refined. Um, how do I get to this? I was just speaking to someone who was saying, you know, it's a really nice system. It speeds things up. You get a lot of good data out of it. There's just kind of these few tweaks we need to make. But it's also one of the things that we're doing the, the pilot for so we can measure that return on investment. 
so we can measure, uh, well, if we're going to invest this kind of dollars into it, we want to show, hey, this is how much time we're saving. This is what the quality increase is going to be across the, both the DHS and, and across the federal database, uh, the federal agencies, so that everyone can uh, see that data. Uh, at the, the DHS Procurement Innovation Lab, we're very much a sharer. And so when we have that information, we'll share it. And I imagine, too, that the the goal really is to get folks who love it so much that when you the when the pilot when the beta ends they are like no you you can't take away from my tool and, and then this can really kind of get a little more momentum behind it and then and then spread it out I mean because because as you said your your metrics that you're using is is are very straightforward are you getting better competition are you getting faster uh, maybe go over just a few of those metrics so we're trying to show that by how much time is saved. Our chief procurement officer, uh, Paul Courtney, has really invested in this idea of shifting work to high-value assets, right? If I have somebody who's spending um, an hour doing a responsibility determination that could be just done just as well, if not better, by uh, robotic process automation, let's see if we can get rid of that and let them have that hour back to do a trade-off, to do something else that only a human can really do. Um, and so we're looking at that same thing. That's that's what our metric is going to be. We're looking at how much time did you spend without the tool, and then how much time are you spending with the tool. And on top of that, we're looking at the quality, of course, because we want to do things as well as we can for the taxpayers and with the taxpayer dollars. And so we're looking at if I ha- what was the quality of my market research before. And so far, we found that um, people again self-scoring said that their quality their quality was good or very good. But hardly anyone said it was excellent. Uh, I did the survey. I think of uh, 52 people surveyed. There were less than 10 that said it was excellent. We want to try to get more people into that excellent market research realm. This was all self-scored, of course. So we want to look at, do the tools help us get to excellent? Because that's what we want. We want excellent market research. We found with the pill that the longer and the better someone spends in the market research phase is actually predictive of how well the solicitation phase will go not just in how fast it will go, but in the evaluation and in the ultimate award. And so we know that by spending some good quality time in the market research phase, it will pay dividends later when you're doing your evaluation and your award. A lot of people may be listening to this and go, well, doesn't GSA already have a market research tool? Aren't there other market research tools? Yours is a little different, so maybe just quickly give a a why it's different than maybe what we've seen from GSA, and how does it complement the GSA effort as well? Our tool is definitely complementary of the GSA tool. From from what I understand, the, the GSA MRAS tools, Market Research as a Service, looks at the GSA offerings and helps you to pinpoint where within GSA I can buy this best, whether that's Schedule, whether that's Oasis, whether that's another GWAC, Mac, BIC, whatever else. Our tool looks at the whole spectrum, and they're not looking necessarily at where I can buy this, but who I can buy this from. And the where can I buy this is an ancillary product of who I can buy it from. And so when we're looking at these tools, what I'm hopeful of is that someone will use this tool. And if they see that, oh, this looks like I can buy this a lot of times from a GSA offering, then they can go into that GSA offering, whether that's MRAS or whatever else, and start their market research there and say do an an RFI, do whatever else, using the the systems that that MRAS has already got set up because I really do think that they're complementary. It's not like we did build this once for everybody. That's why it's a federal offering, and we try to take into account everything that's out there. And so as, as our system gets smarter, as it gets more information, it will start to know this is a DOD user. These are the vehicles that's available just to DOD. This is a DHS user. Here's the vehicles that are open just to DHS. 
and, and the same for GSA, that it'll can point you in this, would you like to, you know, go over to MRAS and start your, you know, survey-based RFI now? So in the future, in Phase 2 and Phase 3, as, as this tool continues to develop and gets users, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of synergy with the other tools that are out there already. One thing also to clarify is this is not the be-all, end-all. This is step one. You were very clear to say use this market research tool to get going, but make sure you do more than just you know put the information in, take it out, and then release the, the RFP to those vendors who come back. What's your advice or what's your best practices, if you will, to folks who – who are listening to this and maybe go, oh, I could use that. This is step one. What are steps two, three, four, five, and so on? Whenever we're talking about emerging technology, artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, we will always want to make sure that the human is still involved. Uh, it's more of an augmentation of our workforce, right? It's not making decisions for us. It's helping the people make decisions, whether that's the contracting officer, whether that's the market, the, uh, the program office, whoever that is. We want the, the technology to help them make decisions, not make decisions for them. That's not our goal. And so the next step is for this would be I have now a list of where I can go to do continue my market research. First thing that we always suggest people do is pick up the phone. Call a couple of these vendors out there. Ask them some questions. Uh, you start with the uh, statement, I'm doing some market research. Do you have a half an hour to talk, right? That puts them in the box. That covers you. There's also a really great myth buster out there that uh, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy put out uh, several years ago. Go down through that, read through that. It talks a lot about industry engagement and market research, what you can do. That's kind of the first thing. The second thing we, we kind of talk about after that is maybe if you still need more information, doing a request for information in RFI. What we've seen in the past with an RFI is that an RFI sometimes looks like a mini proposal, and it costs vendors a lot like what they're spending on proposals. So we don't get the full response rate. And the response rate that we do get is sometimes it's just capability statements that aren't responsive to our, the questions in our RFI. And that kind of skews then whether we think a vendor is capable or not. So what we're going to is um, like a streamlined RFI. It's called a survey-based RFI. It's going to be up on the periodic table of acquisition innovation soon. But it's basically like um, you take some very specific questions and you box them in in a survey uh, and you say, hey, here's the first question. You've got 250 words to answer this first question. Here's the second question. And you ask just a couple of questions that are important to you. Um, and maybe at the end you collect some information like, hey, what's your business size? What vehicles are you on? And that kind of thing. But really helpful, really easy for industry to respond to, really easy for the program office to, uh, to review, and really good information. Because if I just ask, hey, what's your capability to do X, Y, and Z, that might not get me the information I'm looking for. But if I ask, hey, what is your capability to provide tarps in a disaster zone uh, on in two weeks' notice, that gets me really good information then, and I can start to evaluate whether that company has that experience, whether they have the capabilities to perform the work that I need them to do. Scott, this has been great. I really uh, very much enjoyed and learned a lot. So uh, let me thank you for your time. Scott Simpson is a digital transformation lead in the office of the chief procurement officer in the Homeland Security Department. Scott, thanks so much for uh, talking to me. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 